this is kind of coming off the back of Nick's last week. Trying to go for an epic four chapters of intensely um, symbolic and deeply meaningful stuff. Um, some points I just want to kind of go back and kind of clarify before I kind of jump back in here because you've got to, again, just be careful that people understand this in a context that is hopefully helpful to them as opposed to um, running off with an idea that is not quite entirely what one means. And, and, and Pastor Ring made a, a great reference there to, to Jericho. It's one of those points I couldn't make last again, for time, is that the seven trumpets, again, are very, you know, depict that picture of Jericho, of the trumpets have been sounded and the walls, as it were, of the enemies are being tumbling down in order for the, king, the people of God to come and possess. And so it's, again, that these, these important allusions to the exodus and the fulfillment of that as well. But again, you know, you need to keep those things in mind. But so one of the first points I kind of wanted to go back on is the two witnesses. You know, so I know that many of us kind of traditionally have kind of saw this as two special prophets who would come in the last days and, and uh, kind of show us the way. But again, um, as I kind of highlighted last week, I think these are symbolic representations of the church. And I, what I would say, the, the dual witness of the church the dual witness of the church. And so, obviously, as you look at these two witnesses, you see certain things that kind of identify them, one with Moses and the other one with Elijah. So one of the unique aspects of it, Moses and Elijah is that Moses was there primarily witnessing to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, initial, Pharaoh primarily, but ultimately to the Egyptian world, which represents the unbelieving world. The pagan world, the world that has no knowledge of God. And to some extent, that is the first witness of the church, is that we are to go and be a light to the world, to those who do not know God, to those who believe that he is represented by Osiris or Zeus and such and such. But the significance of Elijah also is that second part of our witness to the world, which is that Elijah primarily witnessed to the apostate Israel. So in that sense, the church has a role in order to witness to those who no longer believe the truths of God. And like Elijah did in terms of Ahab and Jezebel. And again, this reflects all the way back to what we read in the seven churches, isn't it? In chapters 2 and 3. That their woman Jezebel, you need to confront her. And again, it's that whole idea of pointing to signs. Again, Elijah had a ministry filled with signs that were there to tell that, un, that apostate Israel that God was not with them in the way that they fought. And so it is that we must bear witness, as it were. We can't sit and think, well, there's going to be special prophets that rise up in the last days who will do that work for us that they will take all the flack. I believe that it is down to us to be those witnesses. It is down to us to point to the environment and the things that are happening around us and say, 
These are signs that God is not happy with what we are doing. Also, again, I want to expand on this whole idea of the state of progress. And again, many people, again, will buy into this whole idea that we are better off than we have ever been. That somehow we can reach utopia. But as I've kind of pointed back to Daniel 2, progress is not a nothing-to-lose goal. It's not as though we can say, well, look, as long as we continue to go this line, we, we are somehow always improving because what you suddenly realize, or should I say, as any good economist will tell you, that life is a matter of trade-offs. If we do this, we will gain something, but there is the potential that we will also lose something. Again, when we make the same thing with making a career for our lives, we do it at the cost of sometimes family and quality time with them. And we have to make that trade-off. Is this what I really want? So we need to understand that the progress that people see has somehow come at the cost of their souls. That we are losing and we are deteriorating something else. As technology comes in, and again, it's a blessing, isn't it? Here we are on Zoom. Zoom has kept us there. So we realize that these things definitely have come and helped us in our time of need. But at the same time, it's an impoverished church that purely only engages through technology. You know, as I've said, you know, again, <laughs> I can only say just that moment of worship that we just had, you, we've got to be in the room where it happens to really experience it, you know? Who wants to kind of sit and just have a secondhand experience, like, like watching pirate DVDs, you know, as the head bobs up and down, you know? I remember, um, I think it was on... Um, it was one of these old um, drum and bass house guys was on BBC News the other day talking about how um, trying to do raves uh, via Zoom was like, said, you know, and again, I like that kind of East London kind of directness. He said, it weren't really working. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it wasn't the same thing, you know, so we were glad to kind of come back and be able to do their stuff live. So I kind of like have to sit down there and say, yeah, you know, there you go. Technology is a blessing, but it has its limits, right? So it's not progress at any cost. We've got to be honest to the world and say, look, we are deteriorating. Just like that quality of that metal is deteriorating. I also want to make one last point. I got that we're not, away, we're not to come away from what I said about the whole idea of empires and, and think that somehow that as a good Christian, you have to be pro-imperialist. Meaning that you believe that empires somehow bring good into the world. Because if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, as much as they would say, Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of God, Cyrus is the servant of God, they will also, on the back of that, remind you that judgment is also coming to those nations. So it's not like as if we are there saying, well, empire is only good. 
No doubt the Lord uses it. But these nations also suffer the wrath of God because of the abuse of power in which they bring. The world, and, and, and I believe they, it's their own superiority that ultimately makes these things happen, makes these things happen. So, again, let us go to the word of God. Be careful how we take these things in and allow God to speak to us in our time, in our context. So I want to take the time to read through um, chapter 12. Again, one of the reasons why I can do this is that I've got one chapter today, which is, um, which is a blessing. <laughs> Let me take the time to pray. Let me read and then we'll pray. So we're in Revelation chapter 12. This is part six of our Apocalypse Now series. And let me read, reading from the ESV. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with, uh, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12, 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who was, one, one who is to rule. All the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the, earth, to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So this is the word of the Lord. Father, we're so thankful that, again, um, again, like the manna, we come to feast from your word, that we may gain strength, Father, for the fight, dear Lord, that is, ahead of, that is right in front of us. The war that doesn't even stop as we even come together, gather together to worship you, to honor you, dear Lord God. But we're thankful, dear Lord God, that, again, knowing that our weapons are such that are spiritual, that our praise is like a force field around us, dear Lord God. That all the delusions of the world, all those things that would come and, 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 and try to snatch our joy today, dear Lord God, as the praises go up, dear Lord Father, those things are being defeated, Lord God. Even the nervousness about, Lord, what do I do? Bills are going up and all these other things, dear Lord God, that will, uh, again, say, say, say the, the, the economy is shaken up. How do I live? But Lord, as your praises go up, we are protected, dear Lord God. As your word has said, that Lord, we see that the instability of the world, dear Lord God, is one of those things that comes as a judgment against it. But we, dear Lord Father, who come and find security in that spiritual place, in the place that you've given us, even, dear Lord God, the, what would be known as the wilderness experience is our place of protection. It's where we pray. It's where we worship. It's where we come to encourage one another, have fellowship, dear Lord God. This is our seal, our seal and our protection. Thank you, Lord Father, for giving us a place of safety. Amen. Let me start with um, a quote that from Augustine, from um, City of God. And again, um, just one of those things that came as I was going through my time of study that was very poignant to what we are going to be looking at today in terms of this, um, again, as a, the title for this, I guess, is just the plain old good versus evil. Good versus evil, simple as that. And two quotes. This is assuredly the great difference that sunders the two cities of which we are speaking. The one is a community of devout men and women. The other is a company of irreligious, and each has its own angels attached to it. In one city, love of God has been given first place. In the other, love of self. We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching to the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. Very striking quotes about two types of people, two types of cities, two types of persons in whom we have to try and discover who am I? Is the love of God in me or the love of self? 
And obviously, this is not to deny the love of any genuine love of self that is obviously good and healthy, but the whole idea of that, does my love of myself block out any ability for me to love anything beyond myself? Obviously, there is a healthy love that incorporates both and is good and is healthy. But as we ponder that, let's look into our text today and see that there's three particular sections. The first section, one to six, the woman and the dragon. Now, the first thing I want to kind of point out is that the dragon, the woman and the dragon is familiar throughout mythology. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, they all have stories that relate to a woman in war against a dragon, and in particular, a woman with child against the dragon. And all these stories relate to their gods and how their gods come to conquer. So the first thing you have to wonder, is John using this as a form of subversive fulfillment? So looking at all these pagan cultures around him, knowing what they believe, and he says, I'm going to show you Truly, who the woman is, who the child is, and it's not who you think it is. Therefore, it's not Osiris, it's not Zeus, it's not Tammuz, but there is somebody who needs to come there. And we find this is actually true, again, very much of Genesis, of being subversively fulfilling those origin stories that the ancient East, Middle, uh, the ancient Middle Easterns also believed as well. So using their content, they reinvigorate it and say, here is the truth that you have missed. So the woman is also described to the reader as a sign so is it necessary to assume that unless something has been marked out as a sign or a symbol, that everything else is to be taken literally? Well, not necessarily true. Because there are some things that, to some, to obviously to the, to, the, to the readers who know the symbolic language and the apocalyptic language, know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. So... Her being described as a sign is not necessarily saying, oh, well, that bit we, we can say is all symbolic and other bits are literal. So I wouldn't go down that road. But who is the woman? How is she identified? Well, she's clothed with the sun. And 12 stars on her crown or on her head. And this reminds us of Joseph's dream, doesn't it? In Genesis 37. That picture of, of Israel and Jacob and, and his wife and pictured as the sun and the moon. And then Joseph saying that they all bow down to me. So in this sense, we can pretty much confidently say that this is a picture of Israel. And she is pregnant. Which also alludes to the promise of a child that will redeem the earth. Like I said, with those mythologies, and we obviously saw the fulfillment of this back in chapter 5 with the lamb coming to the throne, redeeming the earth. But there is that 
promise all throughout Scripture, which I'm going to take us through, of identifying the promise of this child and why this child was important. So Genesis 3.15 was that first mention of that promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the curse upon Satan that his time will be short, that I have marked your time out. And eventually the trick that you played on the woman will be reversed. And she will have the advantage because she will give birth to a redeemer who will save her. The woman obviously being a symbol of humanity. Then Genesis 22, 17 to 18, tells us this. says, God has a conversation with Abraham. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all, all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So now God has taken us through several thousand years of history and brought us to Abraham. And Abraham is told, it's through your ethnic race this child will be born. Then we go maybe a hundred years later to the time of Jacob in Genesis 49.10. And as Jacob is about to die, he prophesies over his children. And over Jacob, over Judah, he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So now there's a further narrowing down. So it's not just from any particular tribe or any particular son of Israel's, but it's going to come through Judah. Judah will be the one who the obedience of the people will come to. Then that takes us all the way to David now in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, when he is given a great promise as Nathan now responds to David's request to build a temple. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now that becomes even narrower. It's not even about just Judah in general. Now it's going to be from a particular family in Judah, from David's lineage. And the interesting thing as you come to the, the Gospels in both Matthew and Luke is that from both sides, from Mary and from Joseph, he is from the lineage of David. What a blessing. So the development of Scripture creates the anticipation for a new ruler who will supersede the rule of the devil over the earth. But the crying of the woman, so that was a notable, a notable thing as well. She is crying. She's not happy. I believe reflects the suffering of Israel. As being that chosen, that chosen race, that chosen ethnic group, 
a target has been painted on their back. And now the devil is aiming for her, aiming for Israel. The people of God comes with baggage. The dragon is then described as it appears to have a lot of features in common with the fourth beast in Daniel, right? Seven, seven heads and ten horns. So this is best understood as representing the entire world system. So we know that the devil has to operate through agents just like God is operating through us, his church, as agents. So therefore, we, you know, both sides are enlisting. Those who are willing. And the reality is, is that we do not know what we are enlisting for if we're not really checking. And it just so happens because there tends to be a vacancy within the world powers of basically doing whatever, need, whatever we need to succeed that Satan can very easily use the powers around us because they're bait. Bait to be used. So even though seven heads, again, representing the completeness of the whole world system, it is, and ten horns obviously representing power, legitimate power, there is one body. So that means that we're, we're looking at something that, even though it has distinct nations or distinct features, it is one body. It's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. It's going to be the same thing. But one thing that Daniel reminds us is that even though these nations come under the influence of the evil spirits, and we see this, obviously, within the context of Daniel's prayer and obviously fighting the spirit of Persia, for example... The reality is that they are still subject to the sovereign God. In other words, these nations are not frustrating the will of God. And so we are, we are strengthened, especially through the testimony of Daniel, that even though the people of God have been swept into the heart of this pagan system and outside of the land, that nonetheless, God is still with them. The covenant is not null and void. The covenant still keeps on. So the stars that are swept away by the beast may not necessarily refer to the angelic host, even though there seems to be a parallel hell here, but we have got to make sure that we are doing good biblical theology and not just following Milton in Paradise Lost to believe that these things obviously correspond to that much of what we understand about the devil has really come through writers, just writing creatively, whether that be Milton in this case or Dante. What are we to believe about heaven and hell? Well, let's stick to scripture as opposed to works of fiction, as helpful as they may be. The dragon is given a, his primary task of hounding the woman who is as we said, being targeted is for the birth of the child. So it's not even so much that it wants Israel as the people of God. It's the child he really wants. And so he watches Israel like a hawk. Where is this child going to come? Let's try and make sure we can get rid of it. 
Because I don't want what God says to come true about me. And much like in popular fiction, you know where you see in those time travel movies where you know, people are trying to stop the thing to happening that they obviously they want to avoid, and you suddenly realize that they end up fulfilling it. The very actions that they take push them right into it. And, and so the torment and the, the, the venom that he comes to the woman with is ultimately fulfilling that which he wants to do. He has no idea that this is not going to be a David conquering through conquest and through victories. He has no idea that the suffering of the cross is the very thing that defeats him. That's why, again, there are certain parts of the plan of God which Daniel, and even as we saw last week, even John are not allowed to write. Shh, between me and you. Has no idea that this is what God's about to do. So he's waiting for the child, and he doesn't realize that the very thing that he's planning to do to sweep this child away as quickly as he can is actually going to make that chapter 5 of Revelation possible, the redemption of the earth. The woman is now whisked away into the wilderness. Again, this is another allusion to the Exodus, right? being taken away. The wilderness is not to be seen as a place of barrenness. So we've got to be careful here. But as a place where God brings protection to his people, which, you know, and, and they will make, in order to make their way to the promised land. In other words, it's a way of pilgrimage. As we look at Hosea 2, I, I, I want to kind of, picture this whole idea of how in the Old Testament the wilderness experience is, divide, is, 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 is defined. So Hosea is looking back at the wilderness experience in a very different light than maybe a modern Israelite in, of his time would have. And this is about, obviously, Hosea is about that picture of wooing his bride back bringing her back into the fold, bringing her back into obedience, like he is obviously prophesying that Israel would. And in Hosea 2, 14 to 15, it says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So in other words, that picture that Hosea gives us is the wilderness experiences is me bringing you back to the basics, bringing you back to where we began. Like the lover where, you know, again, you know, the picture I had, I, 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 a couple of years ago I had to preach on this, and it's like the picture of, you know, when, when you're a young lover and Life is really simple. You've got you and maybe you, you and the missus in, 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 in one bed sit. And you're sitting there and, you know, you, you've got, you ain't got much money and your beans on toast and you're feasting on that like as if it was steak and 
chips and it's just beautiful. And it's the simple days of romance. It's the simple days where, you know what? I got you, babe, right? And it was beautiful. And then, you know, you get the mortgage, you get everything there, you got the house, you got the land, you got, you know, you, you, know you, you, can, you can now have steak and chips for real. And all of a sudden, it's like every meal is a drama. And you suddenly realize, where have we come from the simple days where we had so little, but yet we were so happy? It's that picture that Hosea is bringing, that young love. Let's go back to where we began. And that wilderness experience is that picture of, let's go back to where we, in our early years of loving God, are there where we enjoy the simplicity of those things that he gave us. Where every, every meal, no matter how simple it was, was a feast and was a blessing. So the valley, so the wilderness is that type of experience. Not like, oh, I want to drag you through difficulty. No, let's just simplify life. And so often we find that even against our own desires, God simplifies our lives, right? And it looks like persecution, but it's this picture that he's saying, no, I'm bringing us back to basics again. So getting away from the distractions in life will be helpful in order to focus on what is important. So that's what's happening the redemption of suffering is, is also important here, you know, and, and to be considered as a factor that the wilderness of experience reinforces that dependence on God. So we need to sometimes allow ourselves to come to that place where I want to only trust in you, Lord. And that wilderness experience brings that. We come to the second major section now in verses 7 to 12, which is war in the heavenlies or Michael versus Satan. The best way to describe this section is that it reflects the victory of Christ on the cross as it corresponds to heaven. So what we have now is that, that picture of the child and what he does. And child, just before it gets whisked to heaven, is that, that as Christ is winning that victory and as he ascends, that mirrored in heaven... Michael, the angel of Israel, is fighting against Satan. Now, I'm a bit dramatic when I kind of picture these things because as a kid, this is one of the ways he kept me focused in church of thinking about all these things that are happening. And so, all, you know, I, I kind of picture, you know, there is the devil, much like we see in Job, the Satan, the accuser, bringing up all these accusations, and all of a sudden, Michael stands up, corresponding to the victory of Christ on the cross. And he starts marching over to Satan, and he's now calling his guys, come, we've got the right to kick them out. And all of a sudden, Satan is just getting bagged up and being booted out of heaven because of what Christ has done on the cross. And Satan is wondering, what has changed? My plan was successful. I've got him there. They accused him. He said that he was the son of God, but look, he's dead. I've won. And Michael says, no, I'm sorry. You have not won anything. Again, that subvert, you know, he fulfills his own faith. And so that's that picture 
corresponding that as Christ is winning, we see the real victory, the victory that we maybe want to see is being played out and Satan is being tossed out, demoted as the accuser. Luke 10 represents this, doesn't it, in 17 to 20. As, he sees, as Jesus sees his disciples preaching and doing the work of God, he says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So there's that treading on serpents, isn't it? That the believers, that we do. Again, not, this is not for special ministers to do. It's for all the church to do. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that the beauty of the reality of the believer, that what Christ does, we do. Our victory, his victory is our victory. We cannot escape this truth that it's through the suffering of the church that the will of God is established. God's kingdom is not established through sheer might as people thought, as even the Israelites thought. Even, even though this will be true, when we see that final re revealing of Christ in his true glory that only the disciples have seen up, up until this time. No other human has seen that. The transformed Christ. The kingdom right now is being built on the good news. But that day will come. That is freely preached to those who have an ear to hear. When it is opposed by evil. When people want to stop that witness. Take your best swing at the church of God. Go on. Give it your best swing. But with every swing, it will only knock away the power of evil and establish the, king of God, the kingdom of God more. Go on. Give it your best shot. Try and get rid of the church. Try and quiet its message. Go ahead. Let's see. If you're really up for it, try it. The history of the church has shown us that it only grows. And that's just a fact. Read your church history. Or if not, just read the book of Acts. Every swing the devil takes just grows the church and fans it and fans it like a fan in flame. F.F. Bruce quote there. One thing that we've also revealed in this section is the snide nature of Satan. Satan is now revealed as the serpent of old. So therefore, that's the genuine connection of, well, who is the serpent? Again, this is not the work of fiction. Revelation itself, John himself connects Satan, the accuser of the brethren, to the serpent at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. So we can run with that and we can say, well, you know, was it just a random snake? Well, no, it was obviously a snake under the influence of some spiritual power that corrupted the woman's view of God. 
He's the deceiver and the accuser. So this is where his snide nature comes in. So he, he entices the person to fall. And this is my definition of snide. I mean, it's a term I used from when I was in school. And you meet certain people like that. They're not many of them, but they're real weasels. Real, real weasels because they love to stir. They'll wind you up in the class, get you to do something crazy, get you to chat, get you to throw something at them, and then as soon as you do it, miss, miss! Look, look at what he's doing. Snide. These are not impressive people. You know, I could only think of, I mean, there's two people I can think, specifically in Shakespearean text, because he kind of gets that character right, but he's like a Yago, whispering in the ears of everybody, and then whispering to the person he's trying to set up, and saying, How do, where's this all coming from? Why are they all against you? Oh, this is crazy. You're the nicest person on the earth. And whispering and creating and stoking up of fellows' persecution. I like Isaiah 14, 16, when it describes the person of Satan. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? That's that snide nature. We like to think of him being impressive. But when we really see him, man, he is the ultimate weasel. Also, the twofold nature of the believer's victory is noted here. Remember, it's the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So they are saved by the blood of the lamb, which is the real time and space event of the cross, which vicariously atones for the sin of all those who repent of all those who repent, not a universalism. But, it's objective, but the objective reality of the believer's salvation is established in what they experience and how they live that out. So the word of the testimony has a role to play in the victory over the dragon. So this is best understood as a subjective experience of the believer as they live out what they believe. So it's not just merely pointing to the cross and saying, Lord, I believe, I've said the sinner's prayer, and that's it. There's more to it. That the subjective reality, that the word of their testimony, that you are, you genuinely, do you have a testimony even? What is God, where are your victories? Where are, is your badge of honor that you can say, this is what I've suffered for Christ? Paul points to the stripes on his back, to the Corinthian church. And he says, I bear the marks of an apostle. Where are your marks? Where are your signs that I'm holding on no matter what? So the subjective experience is revealing who we really are. As I said from that quote, am I loving my life 
to the point of contempt for God? Or am I loving God almost to the point where people look at me and say I have contempt for my own life? What do we hold dear and true? So the objective reality of Christ on the cross coupled with the subjective lived experience of the person is what establishes them as a believer or not. Do we live for the gospel? The final woe in this section is that now that Satan has been thrown out, he's now coming to earth with wrath. And again, that's to prick up our ears. It's like said, this is the battle that we are now engaged with. You know, all that Israel had gone through, again, as I said, with that armies and all those things that are coming next, we haven't seen anything yet. The worst beasts are safe for last. He said, that fourth beast that we saw coming out of the sea, there was no way of even defining it to some creature. It's not like a bear. It's not like a, a, a leopard. It's just monstrous. And we are seeing these monstrous regimes come and eating up the world and hate Christianity. Hate it. The final section, 13 to 17, seems to now move away from heaven and now focuses us back on the earth again. With obviously, where Satan is now coming back with his wrath. So as that scene shifts, the target, again, is on the woman. He hasn't stopped the child. In other words, he's furthered his, he's furthered his wrath. He knows he's had short time, and so... He is aiming to do what he can. So what is the woman now? Is it, again, Israel? Well, yes, it is Israel still. But Israel in a new form. Israel now not just representing those who are ethnically born of Abraham, but now Israel as the church, the new Israel. But the woman is protected by a, a second exodus as well. Again, um, Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. So that's that picture of the wings coming out of the, out of, out of the woman and brought you to myself. So there's a protection. But remember, it's not, mere, it's not physical protection as such. It's spiritual protection. So much of the book of Acts and beyond can be said to represent here, represented here with the dragon pouring out persecution against the church in its early, especially in its early formation, as you look at those things, that pattern in the book of Acts where there's a, there, there is this outpouring of growth and then a challenge comes to try and subdue that growth and then that seems to have a hold on that, but then the, the believers fan out. And then the church grows again, but now it's not just growing in Jerusalem, it's growing in Samaria. It's growing in Antioch. It's now growing in Greece. It's now growing in Rome. So as, it, as they persecute the church, God is adding to it. So it's having the reverse effect. So as much as people believe that they're having, the, the dragon is winging, the, the water coming out, persecution coming out of its mouth, it's only been eaten up by the acts of God. 
So much like the scattering of the apostles and the deacons after the persecution, even particularly of Saul, isn't it? You know, and again, that's the blessing of it, is that, again, you've got to see, the, you've got to see the, the, the irony of God here. You know, you've got a Saul in the book of Acts who, who is there persecuting the church. And then God says, I'm going to make him mine. I'm, you know, and the devil was mad before. Then he then takes one of his chief weapons and says, I'm going to make him into mine. How do you like that irony? And furthermore, he's a Pharisee, but you know what? I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. He's not even going to be focused on Jews, ethnic Jews. He's going to go to places where nobody has been before. No, and, and, and as a Pharisee, that's the irony of, of, of how God wins this war. He takes the weapons of the enemy, you know. It kind of reminds me like Samuel Hung, isn't it? Um, for those of you into Kung Fu flicks, you know, everything becomes a weapon. He picks up a handkerchief. <laughs> and that's what God is like. He is Samuel Hung times one million. You come with a sword... I'm going to come with this little paper clip and I'm going to beat you with this. Wow. And the disciples go everywhere. So the persecution's not working. It's being swallowed up. And here we see that, again, that position, that, that, that representation of like the first exodus, like with the Red Sea and like with the Korah Rebellion, that the ground is opening up and whatever people are aiming at the church in order to stop it from surviving, to, to stop Israel from fulfilling its purpose, God is swallowing it up and using it for his benefit. So, the, you know, so we need to expand on this and say, look, the church needs to guard from persecution for sure. But like, especially as we think of the chorus, the potential chorus and Dathans amongst us, we have to also say we have to be on the guard for deception. And again, that's that going back to that dual witness that we need to do. It's not just outside there in the world we need to witness to. We need to also be on guard for the fact that there are people who will come and sow division amongst us, and we need to be on guard against them. So who is the rest of the woman's offspring? So kind of that final point is there. Well, I believe it's the Gentile church expanded that are particularly aimed, the new Israel. But also, possibly... Like in that last section with the, 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 the outer court that was not measured, that it could be the persecuted church. The church that has exposure through the regimes that they're under, whether you are in Rome in the first century, especially under Nero, that these are now being given over in order to, to fulfill the victory of Christ. So again, that might very well mean that. But again, it's the fact that he is now gunning for the children, the, 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 
the Christ's offspring, and which we obviously can identify ourselves as being Christ's offspring. So let's go to applying this. Have we allowed ourselves to lose the moral ground? Have we become so concerned about the rights of humans that the rights of God have become irrelevant? The law, as given by Moses, is predicated on the rights of God before any right to humanity is offered. And this ought to be because if there is no God to give a moral form to the universe and to the creative order, then no human right would be worth any paper it's written on. We'd be in the world of Nietzsche. If there is no God in the center of the moral universe, well, let's just do whatever we want. Be like the noble beasts. What we have in this chapter is the framing of the age-old battle of good versus evil. The value of the woman is because she holds the truth of God, not in herself. And one day, it will provide a physical form. And that's what Satan is trying to stop. The dragon is opposed to the woman because she holds the key to the end of his reign over creation. This is Revelation's clearest way in which it can, de it can, be de it can define this battle between good and evil. Though some aspects of God's plan are a mystery, yet to be revealed, we have been revealed this great truth. So what are we to do? Well, again, I go back to Matthew 24 and 25 and where Jesus is saying, well, what is the mold of the believer in the last days? Well, he says, well, you ought to be a light, first and foremost, in a dark world in order to make his coming clear and revealed, you know, like the virgins who are ready to trim their lamps in darkness. And if you haven't been aware, we're in a country that is in darkness and we need to shine the light to let them know that Jesus is coming. We are to warn the world, those who, like Pharaoh, resist the system, resist the whole idea of, who is this God that I should answer to him? And we should say, look what's happening around you. As they're building these, these systems, as they're building these initiatives, they're crumbling beneath them. And we say, can you not hear the trumpet has sounded against you? As quickly as you're trying to, do, to develop and, and to make these things successful, they are crumbling before your eyes. Likewise, we are to look at the apostate church, those who believe that we have nothing really, you know, let's just go with the flow of the world. Let's just pretty much go with what we call progress and run with the world and adapt the gospel in order to fit within the standards of the world. And we are to look at them like Jezebel and say, can you not see that God is crumbling your system behind, around you? No sooner do you build and take a step back, you're already moving back again. Like Elijah, you have to say, you're going to have to take a decision. Either God is God or Baal is God. You cannot have both. 
We also have to come together as a real community, take care of one another. We are to reject the rebellious nature of Korah, what wants to cause division, and submit to the will of God rather than make a name for ourselves. And that's that picture of what is that servant? Are you that good servant who's taking care of the other believers? That's what we need. What are you doing with your talents? Are you building where it will eventually burn and be lost or not even bothered? You need to invest in the kingdom. It's real. The kingdom that is coming has come in the believer's heart. Where are your talents? Even, the very, even within that parable, the whole idea is that even if you just give money to where the kingdom is, that would be of benefit. Give yourself. Give your talent to the work of God. The line between good and evil cannot be drawn at the point of human rights. As I said, with poverty or racism or sexism or even environmentalism. These are all symptomatic of the larger problem with the creative order. This is, again, you know, um, Schaefer, Francis Schaeffer is really helpful here. You know, that point of the fall. We lost our, our relationship with God. Then we lost our relationship with ourselves. Who am I supposed to be? We then lost our relationship with our neighbor. How do I treat my neighbor? And then we lost ourselves and our position in the world. How do I treat the world? If you try to fix the problem merely at, let me fix myself, let me love my neighbor, let me try and protect the environment, you are going to lose that which is important, which is, let me fix myself with my God. And then all these things will come. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's simple, right? We need to remember that idolatry stands as the principal indictment against Israel and against the world. As I shared last week, the idolatry, that which we worship other than God, is a problem. And as it was the final indictment that brought Israel into exile, all right, you want to worship idols? I'm going to take you into the center of idol worship and let you see what you're into. We need to challenge the world on its idolatry and that the love of God should be at the center of all things. There's another potential issue. Are we weary of the wilderness experience, the place that God has brought us in order to protect us? There's a real danger that what God has provided for our protection is seen as a hindrance to our comfort. Numbers 11, 1 to 6. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard in his anger, was kindled in the fire. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabeth, Taborah, because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Again, the people we need to protect ourselves against. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. 
We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. There are those who will say, we, we, you know, the church is built more than this, you know. that You can almost hear the health and wealth gospel in there, isn't it? We need more than this. We need to be the head and not the tail. We need to demonstrate to the world that we've got everything that they want, materially, even if we lose our souls. You've got to be careful of those voices. Paul adds some clarity to this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 11. Now, these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. The 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Our experience of the Christian walk can be one that leaves us wanting to abandon the pilgrimage. I want what everyone else has. In order to gain what we can right now and do so at the cost of leaving that which lies ahead of us and abandon it. Jesus reminds us to remember Lot's wife, that looking back, that regret that we can have. We need to fight. But we don't fight as others primarily do with protests. Spiritual issues cannot be addressed by politics and law. As a church, we have allowed ourselves to be shamed into dropping our principal weapons. And this needs to change. You know? People have told us, yeah, you're going to pray, but what else are you going to do? I'm being honest. What else are you going to do? What's prayer done? And we have dropped the very things that are our primary weapons. Let me close on this. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We've just seen that in the text, haven't we? but against the rulers and against the authorities who are under cosmic powers. Over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that, may, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm! Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes on your feet, having, which, having put on in the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish 
all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's a spiritual war. And we need to fight it spiritually. If Revelation is revealing anything to us, it's revealing the need for us to pray and to be given our witness to the world, giving them the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as the battle rages around us, what are we to do? Well, Lord, you've told us we need to go out and continue our witness. Continue to defend that which is true. As we go to work, as we go to school, as we sit with our neighbours, as we sit within the community, as opportunity gives us, dear Lord God, and people ask for our commentary on what's going on in the world today, dear Lord God, there is our task. Well, I believe that we're under the judgment of God. And I believe that he is doing these things and shaking up the world so that we might remember him and remember him alone. And as our love for him grows, that we will indeed see that these things that we so know need to address, the poverty in the world, the, 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 the disease, the, the destruction that we see going, we know that God will address these things. And Lord, we will not abandon the weapons in which you've given us to to fight this Lord let our prayer meetings flourish Lord let our time of prayer flourish let it be again seen as the point of strength in which it is Lord God as we put on that armour Lord daily and we, we say Lord I'm going to be righteous today I'm going to do the right thing I'm going to be peaceful. I'm not going to, again, stir up and, and, and get in my brother or sister's face because I believe they owe me something. I'm going to put on peace. I'm going to walk in peace today. I'm going to, I'm going to be Christ. Lord, all these things, Lord Father, are our true weapons in the spiritual warfare. So, Lord, we fight this fight daily. And, Lord, some of us may have put down our weapons. Maybe we've been shamed into doing it. Maybe we've just given up. We've just said, I, I don't see where this is going, but Lord, renew our strength today, Lord. Give us the wings of an eagle, as Isaiah said, that those who are weary may run, may go into that wilderness experience, dear God, that, that experience of protection, of reacquainting, of renewing that relationship. Bring us to that place, dear Lord God, and Lord Father, even if it's something that we have to do ourselves to cut off those things that have prevented us, dear Lord Father, from doing it, rather than wait for you to do that, Lord God, let us do that. Let us flee to the place where you are. So Lord, give us our strength. Renew it today. Let us go out and be fit for the fight. Let us go and be that witness that we need to be both to the world and to those who, Lord God, who, who try to believe that your gospel is something other than what it actually is. Give us strength, Father.
as only you can. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.